what's up, everybody? Glad that you've chosen to continue this journey through Revelation with me. You know, as we continue through this book of Revelation today, we pick up with the third letter written to the church of Pergamum. This letter mirrors the third period of church history. The persecution of the church by the Romans ends as Constantine makes Christianity a state religion. This introduces new problems, though, that are uh, mentioned in this letter to the church of Pergamum, and you'll see that as we get toward the end. Jesus says these problems must be addressed and that they needed to repent, or he would come with a two-edged sword from his mouth, which is the word of God, and he would wage war against those causing these problems. And boy, does he. But let's take a look at this interesting letter and see what we can learn from it today. The name Pergamum comes from two Greek words, Pergos and Gamos. Pergos meaning a tower, citadel, uh, or a powerful fortress, and Gamos meaning matrimony or marriage. So combined, Pergamum means that the meaning is that it's married to a powerful institution or fortress. Now, again, that'll make more sense later as we as we go on. But Pergamum was a powerful city for centuries and was the seat of authority for the Roman province. The governor of Asia lived there and held the right of the sword under Roman law, meaning that he could enforce capital punishment and decide if someone lives or dies. You know, this city was very distinguished um, and known for its artistic and intellectual power in that area. It even had a library that rivaled the one in Alexandria. It was steeped in Hellenistic culture with many temples, monuments, and cults dedicated to false gods like the temple to Zeus, the son of Dionysus, and the Augustan temple. It was also famous for the Asclepian School of Medicine founded in the 4th century AD and known for being a place of healing, which will make more sense uh, as we go through this as well when Jesus mentions the white stones and you know how there will be a new name written on it, and that whole analogy will make sense later. So as we have seen in the other two letters, Jesus is described differently to each of the churches based on the intent of the message uh, that he has for them. And each description is a piece of the description that John gives us in chapter 1. So in this letter to Pergamum, they get Jesus described as the one who comes with the two-edged sword. So right there, that doesn't sound good at all, does it? I mean, the two-edged sword was very common in Roman society and came with came to represent authority for the seat of government along with accountability and judgment for people's crimes, you know, and it was also used for some pretty um, ruthless executions too. But this shows that Jesus chose this description because he wanted to, the church to know that he comes to judge and correct his church and with the authority that he has over it, you know, and with the sword of his word, he will slay the evil that has grown there. And he's conveying that the sort of you know that the sort of judgment that he carries outweighs and exceeds that of Rome. It is his church, and he will be its judge. Okay, now the next statement will seem ominous at first until you read a little further. He says, "I know where you live." Now, when I first read that, I thought, "Well, that man. I, I mean, I couldn't. 
If I heard that and I was sitting in that church, I would have, my heart would have sunk right into my stomach, you know, but you think about any time that line has been used to address someone, it's never good, right? Well, luckily in this case, it is followed by a statement that clarifies the aforementioned statement. He clarifies it by acknowledging that he knows where they live and that they, he knows that they live in a city where Satan has his throne. Now, that's not good either. I mean, you can imagine how wicked that place must have been to earn that kind of description. The city's dominance as a place of pagan worship made it a very evil place to be. And in particular, the city was home to a satanic cult that worshipped a snake idol called Esculapius, if I pronounced that correctly. So spiritually speaking, this church was working in a very dark, dark and challenging place. Despite the challenges of operating in the heart of darkness and facing the most evil persecution, Jesus commends them for not renouncing their faith and for standing firm even during the days of Antipas, who was one of their own. Jesus states that he was a faithful witness that was martyred because of his belief in, in him, in the Messiah. So this church was operating in a dark and evil place, yet they didn't lose their faith. And Jesus praises that. You know, if we stop there, you might think, wow, this church has it going on, man. I mean, they sound like the kind of people that would attack the gates of hell with a water pistol. But remember the description uh, that Jesus was introduced as, you know, at the beginning of this letter, the one who comes with the, with the two-edged sword. He comes to judge the church. So now we see what he has against them. And in verse 14, Jesus says, There are some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught, I guess it's Balak, you know, to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now, to help this reference make sense, let's get a little backstory. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet of God that, at some point became corrupt and greedy. You can read about him beginning in Numbers chapter 22. When Israel traveled through the desert, King uh, Balak, an enemy of Israel, offered Balaam a handsome fee to curse Israel. Balaam soon discovered, however, that God was not going to let him do that. You know, he was not going to get God to curse his own people. When Balak offered uh, more money, Balaam tried to change God's mind, but God commanded him to bless Israel instead. Then Balaam advised uh, King Balak to draw Israel into intermarriage with heathen women and to commit idolatry. So with that said, we understand that Jesus was saying that, you know, there are those among you that are placing stumbling blocks in front of you know, his people, leading them astray, convincing them it was okay to marry women who were unbelievers and pagans and, and practice forms of idolatry, etc. You know, then if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes on to say, you also have those who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, remember we mentioned them previously in the letter to Ephesus. There is not 
much concrete info, you know, on who they were exactly, but, you know, and what they believed. But from what I've gathered, they were similar to the teachings. They had similarities to the teachings of Balaam in the sense that the two groups shared uh, similar things, similar problems, one being sexual morality and the other idol worship. But there's also evidence that the Nicolaitans were false teachers uh, in that they they taught that the law of God was not binding anymore and and that the sins of the flesh had no effect on the condition of the soul. And, you know, Acts refers to them as men who who led lives of unrestrained unrestrained indulgence. So they basically taught that you know since sin sin had, of the flesh had no effect on the condition of the soul, then therefore you didn't have to worry about anything because you know your salvation was was secure, so you could just do what you want. And they taught other believers that God was okay with them indulging in their desire and the desires of their flesh, that it would not affect their salvation. So they were okay. You know, does that sound familiar? Sounds just like those who use eternal security as a license to sin. The name Nicolaitans uh, literally means to conquer people. They were also thought to be responsible for trying to introduce positions of rank and power within the church corrupting the idea that each believer was a was a part of the priesthood. They tried to designate only certain people could be priests and only certain people could have positions of power, so to speak. You know, the danger with this power structure in the church was that it would cause people to seek the position of power or status while others in the positions would in those positions would lord it over the people in the church. And all of which was in opposition of how Jesus established a church to function. You know, as you can see, uh, this church is dealing with two kinds of false teachers and heretics. One that lures believers into committing acts of sexual morality and, and idolatry, etc. And the other exerts power over others, convincing them that they are free to sin with no re- repercussions while corrupting the church even more with the idea that only some could be priests or have positions of power. Jesus tells them, repent, or he will come and wage war uh, against them with the sword of his mouth, the word of God. This is Jesus saying, get your butts in line, or I will come and get them in line for you. He would come and remove all the heretics and false teachers. The symbolism also implies judgment, execution, in that he would cut off you know, the church if they didn't repent and get things in order. Now, it doesn't mean that the individual believer is in jeopardy. It's just talking about the collective church body, you know, especially those who are leading it in, in these um, unholy practices, so to speak. You know, verse 17 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. You know, the reference to hidden manna was intended to contrast a meat sacrifice to idols in that time, that in the end, God would give them food that would satisfy the soul forever. Now, the last part about the white stone with the new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it, 
This is an interesting one because of a practice that a medical school in Pergamum had. Okay, and then we mentioned that school earlier. So when someone finished uh, their treatment, they would exit out the back and talking about this medical school uh, or facility, they would exit out the back where they would find a white stone that they would write their name on and whatever illness they were supposedly healed from. And then they would leave it as a testimony. Now, the problem with that was these white stones were monuments to false gods and false healings. Jesus uses this reference to tell the believers in this church that he would give them a white stone with a new name on it, known only to them, and it would serve as an everlasting symbol of their spiritual healing and their new identity in Christ. Now, let's tie in how this letter represents the third period of the church. It happened around 313 AD when the Emperor Constantine experienced a vision on the battlefield, and as a result of this vision, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, in that moment, the church was married to a powerful institution and a fortress called Rome. Now, does the name Pergamum make, a sense now, make sense now? Uh, meaning that it was uh, married to a powerful institution. So now the, the church is, so to speak, married to the Roman Empire, which was... Uh, a definitely a powerful institution of that time. So now this ended the persecution, but it ushered in a ton of new problems. Constantine declared every citizen was Christian and every child born was Christian. The churches were flooded with unbelievers. Some may have converted, but it was likely that a lot did not convert because they were forced by Roman law to be Christians now. Infant baptism was introduced and mass conversions were the norm of the day. Instantly, the church opened its doors to millions of Romans bringing pagan practices and pagan doctrine into the church. They brought unbiblical ideas like temple priests and not like the priests in the Old Testament, by the way, but more of the pagan style. So brought in, you know, unbiblical ideas like temple priests, statues of idols, infant baptism, and various other pagan influences. And in time, these influences crowded out biblical practices. Constantine and the rest of the Roman authorities became like the Balaams, which, by which Satan set stumbling blocks before the believers. And Roman political authority infiltrated the church, creating a perfect environment for distinctions in rank like the Nicolaitans were were um, thought of doing, you know, but that's ultimately led to what we know as the clergy. So as hundreds of thousands of pagans entered the church, worship of idols, various cult practices, and other uh, heresy entered too. But let's not forget, Jesus said he was coming with a sword and he would end it. He would wage war against those corrupting the church, and that is exactly what he did. He was, you know, he was not going to bring an end to the church as a whole, so he brought an end to the Roman Empire instead. The church was married to the Roman Empire, and it was corrupting the church. So Jesus brought an end to the Roman Empire, cutting off the Balaams and Nicolaitans that the empire represented. So this was the church of Constantine from. 313 AD to 600 AD. 
leading to the end of the Roman Empire. The thing that jumped out at me about this letter uh, in, 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 its, in its entirety is that we should be careful that the people we allow into our lives do not seduce us or lure us into sin, causing us to turn our hearts away from God or try to deceive you into thinking that you know our sin is somehow of no consequence, that it's okay. You're forgiven, so feel free to live how you want. That may sound crazy, but think about how often we allow the same sin to reside in our lives because we know we are forgiven and it's easier to ask for forgiveness than it is to address the sin. Also, just look around you and you will see the modern day Balaams and Nicolaitans uh, being used by Satan to try and corrupt the church and cause the believer to stumble. I love, though, at the end how Jesus ends it on such a, uh, a good note and he, and he leaves it on a note where he reminds the believer that there is hope and the promise of an eternity with him where the soul will find rest and be satisfied and the spirit and the spiritual healing will be forever. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you do for us, how you guide us and teach us. Thank you for your endless forgiveness. But I pray that you would help guide us to a place where we can face our sins and lay them at your feet. Teach us your ways, Lord. Help us to be help us to free ourselves of those same old sins that always seem to rear their ugly heads. I pray that your people would find the strength to let go and allow you to burn away all that is holding them back. I pers- and pursue you with a fiery passion. Use us, Lord, to change lives and impact the world for your name and in your name. God, I feel like ever since I started this series last Friday that the devil has been after me, waging war in my mind. I know it is because he knows that this book speaks of eternal hope for the believer but reminds the devil of his end. It encourages the believer to persevere against the enemy because his days are numbered and Jesus has already won. Give us the strength, Lord to persevere so that we may finish the race and bring glory and honor to your name. Amen.